0: Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: Hello, and welcome to The Doc Exchange, a real stories podcast in partnership with The Grierson Trust. This is a brand new podcast that asks nonfiction filmmakers about the documentaries that have had a lasting impact on their lives and careers. I'm your host, June Jennings. I'm a writer and journalist based in New York and currently serve as the Engagement and Partnerships Manager for Field of Vision, an award-winning filmmaker-driven documentary unit. Every week, I'll ask a new filmmaker or filmmaking team about three documentaries connected by a single theme. That have made a meaningful impression on their work and life this week we're joined by poppy dixon a commissioner and producer who has worked on some of the most jaw-dropping documentaries in recent memory earlier this year poppy joined sky uk as director of documentaries and factual and currently oversees all original commissioning for sky documentaries sky nature and sky crime she previously spent seven years at raw tv in both london and new york her credits there in development and as a producer include Bart Layton's BAFTA-winning feature The Imposter*, the acclaimed hybrid movie American Animals, and the BAFTA-nominated film Three Identical Strangers, which also won a Gerson Award in 2019 for Best Entertaining Documentary. Poppy subsequently worked alongside future podcast guest Simon Chin at Lightbox and produced Ursula McFarlane's Untouchable. It was such a great conversation, and I think Poppy's theme and the three documentaries she chose to explore said theme are all endlessly fascinating. I want to give listeners a heads up that in this episode, we discuss sexual abuse of children and allegations of sexual abuse and its repercussions. Some listeners may find it upsetting or disturbing. Let's check out that interview. So Poppy, thank you so much for joining me on the Doc Exchange. It's really wonderful to have you here.
2: Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. And I'm in great
1: company. I've heard about some of the other filmmakers you're talking to. Sounds like a really good lineup. It's been Quite a ride so far. So before we get into your documentary picks, I wanted to ask if you could describe your path to documentary filmmaking. How did you get into producing?
2: Well, as a kid, I loved drama. You know, I was the sort of kid who put on plays at home and got involved at school. And so I always knew that I wanted to Be involved in some sort of creative visual storytelling. I think when I was younger, I thought it would be in either in the theatre or in scripted. But I did some work experience when I was very young, like sixteen, maybe seventeen, with a, a family friend in sort of popular factual, and that gave me a little taste of it. And then when I left, I studied more German and drama, but it was film essentially at university, and you know started watching more documentaries then. And then when I started working, I actually started in kids' TV, you know, as a PA, sort of entry-level job, and then moved into sort of more kind of fact-dent, popular, you know, sort of entertainment. And I just started watching more docs in my early 20s and realising that, you know, some of the best stories are the are the true stories. And so I sort of gradually made that shift from, um, I worked on some fact-dent shows like The Apprentice, which, you know, ultimately is documentary, it's just constructed and it's a very good training ground, really, for getting into docs. And I sometimes describe my career as a little bit like a child growing up in the sense that I started in kids and then I went to MTV in <laughs> sort of my teenage years and did a bit of entertainment and fact and then eventually got to documentaries in sort of late 20s.
1: Now, as the director of documentaries and factual for Sky UK, you're responsible for commissioning original features and series. So can you talk about what you look for in a project? What captures your attention?
2: Yeah, so it's a really interesting shift for me, you know, to have moved from the producing side to the commissioning side. And really exciting as well, you know, to be enabling filmmakers to fulfill their creative ambitions. I think what I look for are ideas that feel really original, you know, that I haven't heard the story before and I certainly haven't sort of heard it told in that way, you know, with real kind of confidence and creativity. So I'm commissioning feature docs and limited series, you know, box set, mini series. And I think for the feature docs, it's all about, you know, what's elevating it, what's making it worthy of that cinema ticket if ever we go to watch docs in cinema again, but it's, you know, is it an extraordinary story with lots of layers and twists? Is it amazing kind of unseen archive and access It's all those things, but it's also just a really kind of strong directorial vision, I think, is probably the main thing. And then for series, it's, you know, what's going to keep people coming back? You know, does the story have enough material and enough sort of turns and twists for it to build, you know, across multiple episodes?
1: So with that in mind, thinking about the documentary picks that we're going to discuss today and how they often build and have these different turns, they're also united by this theme of exploring the malleable nature of memory. And I'm wondering if you could talk about why films in that specific vein ignite your interest. Every
2: documentary, or at least every retrospective documentary, relies so much on memory. And obviously memory is inherently unreliable. I mean, we all can't fully trust our memories we all color our memories you know they're sort of subconsciously mainly but our memories will shift based on the life experience that we go through and then we go to build these factual narratives in documentaries working with memories that are you know unreliable so we're relying on we're trusting the contributor but we're also trusting their memory to ensure that the picture we paint is true and accurate so I'm really interested in it as a producer, but also as a film watcher, I think it's something that comes up across the board, to
1: be honest. And given that this theme of memory and trust pertains to your own work, films like The Imposter, American Animals, and I would say, to a certain extent, Untouchable, which actually subverts this outdated and dangerous idea that women's testimony in cases of sexual violence is unreliable. What do you think makes this idea of memory such rich terrain To explore in cinema?
2: Sort of film stories in which memory and kind of the nature of memory is is explored and challenged, they kind of allow ambiguities to emerge. And that is what keeps the viewer on their toes. So, you know, if you're trying to really understand what might have happened and read between the lines, you know, that's where these questions about whether we can trust our memory become so important. I think it's as a filmmaker it's really an important part of the process because you know talking to the potential contributors and understanding their stories before we even decide to film them is such a big part of it and you know you never quite know whether what you're hearing is especially I guess I'm thinking about crime stories and some of the ones I've done like the Impostor or American Animals, where you don't know whether what you're hearing is memory, is outright lies, or whether it's something in between, you know, some kind of self-deception that might come from a very authentic place, but it's still unreliable.
1: So with that in mind, and especially thinking about different ideas or how different people perceive events, let's go to your first pick. The film is Stories We Tell. Do you remember the first time you saw this film and what your impression of it was?
2: Yes, I do actually, and this is the sort of... The most recent of the pics, and I think probably the one I saw most recently, and it was at a film festival at BAM at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. Um, I used to live in New York, and I went to I don't know what the festival was or what the screening was, but that's where I saw it in about 2012 or 2013. And I knew nothing about it really, you know, I didn't really know what to expect from the film, and it's really sort of Personal, beautifully personal story about her own family history. It's incredibly intimate. Yeah, it just really struck me that it was a, a very unusual film to make to sort of interrogate your family history and also your own personal story, your origin story, you know, in
1: such a public way. It's such an intimate and personal story, as you're saying, and that focuses pretty exclusively on the dramas and secrets of the Polly family. Why do you think it has this wider appeal to folks outside the family in general audiences?
2: I mean, I think it's ultimately a a sort of universal subject. You know, it's a family and we get really intimate access to her whole family in this, or her whole living family anyway, in the film. And I think everyone probably can relate to the idea of wanting to know who your father is, you know, or who, who your mother was. So, yeah, I think that crosses cultures and crosses borders. It's also got that sort of extraordinary twist. And and those kind of tales, I think,
1: just by their nature, have quite mass appeal. Did seeing stories we tell impact your perception of what a documentary could be?
2: Yeah. So it's very sort of homemade and informal. For somebody who is a fiction filmmaker, my initial experience of it was, huh, this feels really, yeah, kind of like a personal project and actually I mean it's a bit embarrassing to admit it now and this is really as a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen it but (laughs) so turn the podcast off if you haven't in the moment watching it in 2012 I didn't know that the footage was fake all that archive that is shot you know that is specially shot I was swept up in it and there's a moment towards the end of the film where you suddenly see her in the footage directing the little girl playing her and the woman playing her mother and suddenly the curtains are pulled back and you're like oh my god all of that beautiful sort of super eight footage or most of it anyway was performed you know was created in the moment I was just like wow this is extraordinary you know this is so clever and it obviously really kind of works for this story because the whole idea of truth is turned upside down in the story you know her idea of what her personal narrative is, is turned upside down so why not play with the form in that way you know i thought that was really clever but i rewatched it last week and my partner literally 15 minutes in he's like that's re- that's not real um, archive is it and i was like damn you you know how do you how did you get that so quickly and i think it's because it's many 8 years i guess since that film was made but i think a lot more films are using not just reconstruction, but sort of fake archive in that way. And we're just a bit more attuned to it. That's my excuse anyway for why I, I I didn't get it back then.
1: I mean, yes, like the first time I'm watching the film, I'm thinking like this is a family of performers, folks who are in this sort of space. And so the idea that then it's almost like a meta commentary on like the performance of different roles in a family too is super interesting. And something else I particularly loved about the film was its attitude Towards showing the filmmaking process, you mentioned something earlier about seeing like the homemade quality of things, like showing the camera setups, the filming of her father's voiceover. What do you think elements like that lend to the story of this particular film?
2: Yeah, I think you're right. And I loved all that as well. And I think, again, it comes back to this idea that the film goes down an unconventional path, or at least the story does. So it sort of lends itself to some unconventional techniques. And there's just, there's a moment early on where essentially the fourth wall is broken because one of the brothers, I think it is, turns to her and says, you know, what do you think this film is about? I think that's really clever. You know, she's sort of saying from the beginning, this is an exploration. This is an experiment. This is, I guess, a process of storytelling. And I think that's also, um, you really see that in the the use of her dad in this kind of voiceover role. And it's quite an awkward setup with him reading this VO and her correcting his VO. And from the beginning, you feel like there's something not quite right about this. Why is this man performing the VO? Why is she directing it? Maybe she's written it. So you kind of know from the beginning, okay, this is a version of events. This isn't
1: necessarily, we don't want to take anything here as completely written from the beginning. So moving on to your second pick, which is decidedly more sober, Capturing the Freedmans. Can you describe what the film's about and why you think it's such a significant piece?
2: Yes. I mean, this film stayed with me for years. I think I watched it pretty soon after it came out, actually. It's an extraordinary story of a family who's, again, a family whose lives turn upside down. And this is because the father and the youngest of the sons are accused of sexual abuse against a group of boys who attended a computer class that they ran. And I guess the central question of the film is, did the abuse actually happen? Did the boys simply make it up? Uh, you know, whether the police sort of interrogation techniques and the bizarre hypnotic memory recovery, whether that was real or whether the memories were sort of implanted in the kids' minds. So there's a, you know, you you leave the film really not knowing what the truth is and it really gets you talking I mean, it's a devastating film. And I think um, that's partly because the access in the archive is extraordinary. That the sort of intensely personal nature of the family footage is something that you rarely get access to see, a truly dysfunctional family. And I guess for me, it kind of really was one of the first films I saw that illustrated how the truth can be stranger than fiction, you know, which I know is a phrase often used. But for me, you know,
1: many of my favorite films kind of fit into that category. It's definitely a uniquely harrowing film. And I have to say, personally, pretty tough watch for a variety of reasons. And so I'm wondering, have you seen it again since that first time? And if so, whether you gained anything new from revisiting it? Was it as striking as you remember?
2: I did. I watched it last week. I watched all, all of the films again in the, in the last week to have a think about them again, because I hadn't seen them in a while. And to be honest, I rarely watch anything or read anything. I'm not somebody who goes back to things like there's so much new sort of culture to absorb rarely go back but I did and and actually I watched it with my partner and he hadn't seen it before and he was really traumatized by it I hadn't sort of prepared him for that and I, I hadn't really thought about it in that way but no for me I mean what the truth is, you know, how much of these allegations are true. I felt really sad about the relationship between the mother and the sons, you know, really tragically dysfunctional. And one of the other things I noticed, actually, and it was the same with Stories We Tell, is in watching it again, what I considered in my memory of the film as the twist, it came much earlier than I remember. So actually, the fact that they were accused of molesting children that's not a twist that comes late you learn that very quickly in the film and it's funny because I, I always think oh that the twist generally comes you know two-thirds of the way through the film or whenever but actually it doesn't in both these films it comes fairly early and then the rest of the film is unraveling that and questioning whether there's truth in it or what you know different in stories we tell but in this one you're sort of faced with this question and then you're handed the materials and the interviews and the
1: reflections and all the amazing archive to sort of grapple with through the rest of the film. And so just pivoting a bit, and this may be a more of a general question, do you approach your own projects with a perspective on what the truth is or do you prefer to try to remain neutral and work from there? Yeah,
2: I mean, I think you always start with an idea. You always got to a sort of sense of what you think the truth might be but you have to put that to one side really I mean you'll debate it you know you debate it the whole way through with the director with the editor with the rest of the team but ideally certainly in the sort of films that I make and enjoy you want the viewer to be debating it afterwards you know unless you're making a a sort of a film with a very, you know, polemic or a film where you have a very sort of naked point of view, I think you have to keep an open mind all the way through. You have to gain the trust of the contributors and you have to give them the respect of coming at it with a completely open mind. So yeah, you, you want to ask all the questions and carry out the research in a way that's sort of like a an investigation or an excavation process. Yeah, so I think that you owe the film and you owe the people in it the opportunity for things to go in many directions.
1: (laughs) So speaking of films going in many directions, uh, we'll go to your final pick, which is The Thin Blue Line, which is widely regarded as a game changer in documentary filmmaking, particularly for its use of reconstruction. Can you talk about the film's impact on you and your approach to making and producing documentaries?
2: Yes. I mean I can't I I think I watched this at university, but I know it it came up again as a reference when we were making The Imposter, so in about two thousand and nine or ten and I rewatched it then, but I think when I watched it the first time, I don't think I knew that documentaries could be told like this, you know, with so many of the traits of drama. Again, I don't know if I noticed it at the time, but I noticed it again watching it recently. Um, There's no name captions like you traditionally get in docs. So you figure it out in the way you figure out a drama. You know, a drama doesn't come on and it doesn't tell you who each character is. And I really like that. I think it probably just reiterated for me that docs can be, really cinematic, and they can be structured and, and told like a scripted drama, which I found really exciting.
1: So reenactments are something that you mentioned were employed when producing Bart Layton's documentary, The Imposter. Can you talk about your conversations with him regarding how to successfully integrate those reenactments into the story? Did you use the thin blue line as a template for The Imposter?
2: Yeah, I mean, it definitely came up, and I'm sure it was an influence for Bart. I mean, Bart's a very visual and a very sort of story-driven filmmaker and a huge fan of the movies. So he's constantly referencing 60s and 70s crime thrillers and heist movies. And you know, you do see that in his work, and perhaps even more so in American Animals, um, those influences. Yeah, I mean, I think he always saw the dramatizations in The Imposter as sort of going beyond what a typical kind of TV recon might be you know it had to be cinematic it had to sort of take you somewhere and I think probably what's different in the thin blue line it's very specifically sort of one sequence is reenacted multiple and you see it from multiple different perspectives and there's kind of an agenda behind that right like he's trying to prove the innocence of this man and sort of that's I imagine part of the sort of purpose of showing the viewer you know how different people's recollections as a whole maybe can't be trusted because they don't add up you know each time you see the reconstruction it looks slightly different and in the imposter it's different because firstly it's extensive you know the whole film is 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 filled with these dramatizations and we don't see the same scene from multiple perspectives what we see is the scene you're in at that moment and the person you're hearing you're kind of It's sort of a version of what the person speaking is remembering. So you're sort of in with them from their point of view in a kind of subjective way. It's not saying like this is exactly what happened, but it's sort of saying this is a version of this is representative of the experience this person had. And I think that's a really sort of immersive. I think that gives you the experience more akin to watching a movie than the Errol Morris film, which it feels more like a construct you know like the, the dramatizations are not realistic they're very heightened they're quite theatrical and the idea with the imposter was that it they're, they're more like sequences that you would see in a in a really good movie i hope <laughs> that was the ambition anyway
1: speaking about different approaches to storytelling and the question of authenticity errol morris famously rejected cinema verite claiming it set documentary filming back 20 or Thirty years. So, what do you think there is to be gained from revealing the artifice or the constructedness, sometimes inherent to making a documentary film?
2: It's a really good question, and I think today more and more people are doing that. You know, there's a lot of documentaries where you kind of see the character. We do it in Untouchable a bit, actually. You sort of see them sitting down, or you hear the the interviewer's voice, but not in the way you used to in a kind of news doc, where you know the the journalist or the filmmaker might be in shot. It's more, it's a deliberate moment of sort of almost surprising or kind of knocking the viewer off their comfortable perch and going, oh, right, we're in a doc. Uh, Even though I haven't made lots of cinema verite docs, I don't reject the idea of them like Aaron Morris. I think there's a place for every kind of documentary and I think stories can be told in a multitude of different creative ways. So, yeah, I think sort of playing with the form and sort of mixing things up and at some points, you know really highlighting that what you're making is a construct is it's sort of it allows the viewer to place themselves in a position of assessing what they've seen and knowing that we're not trying to trick them. you know this is all a construct, the director. And the team behind it have made the decisions, you know, to place things in a certain way. And I think it's sort of respectful to the viewer to sometimes remind them of that. It puts them in an interesting kind of really proactive position rather than a passive sort of viewer position.
1: There's definitely an element of sort of building trust by revealing that the constructed nature of the film. I think that that's something that, as you have said, is something that is becoming more prevalent in films that are coming out now. Just wanted to take it back a bit to The Thin Blue Line, which had very tangible implications for the conviction of Randall Adams. And I'm wondering, when you're getting involved with projects that play a role in seeing justice done, are you aware of the power of a documentary as you're making it? Or is that something that often happens in hindsight?
2: Yeah, I mean, you have to be aware of the power or the potential power of a documentary from the beginning I think that's your responsibility to the people in the film or people who might be impacted by the particular subject matter so yeah I think that's your duty and I mean I haven't done a whole lot of films that have a kind of social impact or seek justice in that way but I was really kind of glad to be involved in Untouchable as it did have a real purpose and at the time we were making it the Me Too conversation was essential I mean we were everyone was talking about it every day. So it felt like a real privilege to be able to talk about that subject every day as as part of my work, you know. (laughs) So it gives you a different kind of motivation than just telling a good story, you know. I mean, making people think is clearly one of the key kind of reasons for getting involved in documentaries. But, you know, it's even in a film that isn't, quite so overtly issue driven or like untouchable where we kind of hoped it would empower people you know you have to think about your responsibility so for example American animals which you know it's a American Animals is actually a movie that has a documentary, but the director describes it as, you know, a movie with a documentary smuggled inside it because there are interviews woven into the drama rather than drama woven into the interviews, which is, you know, the way The Imposter or or The Thin Blue Line work. It's a heist movie, basically, but we were really conscious that we weren't glamorizing the crime. You know, this was a real story which had, a victim, and, or multiple victims if you consider the families and the university and, and, and obviously the librarian in that one. And I think it was important that there was a sort of cautionary tale element and that we did have the voice of the victim, the librarian, at the end of the film. And so for me that became, um, I was relentless on my pursuit of the librarian. I really wanted her to take part because I thought it was important that, the film is sort of rounded off with a reminder that this wasn't a sort of victimless heist caper. It was a true story and there was a woman whose life was irreparably changed by it.
1: I'm curious about in the context of getting the librarian to go on the record as part of the film and also given that women's testimonies, uh, particularly around assault, are so not often believed. This is also the case, unfortunately, in Untouchable... And we're seeing this shift now, thankfully, somewhat. How do you pitch projects? We can start with Untouchable, also talk about American animals. How do you pitch a project to the interviewees and earn their trust?
2: Yeah, it's really challenging because, understandably, people usually start from a place of fear and privacy or not really... Kind of understanding what what's in it for them, you know. Where should they expose themselves? And you have to tread really carefully and really gently, and sort of get to know them without any pressure to take part in the film. More of a place of, I'm interested in your story. I'm interested in, you know, even if it just ends up as background research, you know, I'm interested in hearing what you have to say about this subject. And in that process you know, you'll tell them about your plans for the film. You know, with Untouchable, these women had lived with these memories for years, you know, decades for some of them, and they either hadn't been believed, or they'd been so sure that they wouldn't be believed that they hadn't told anyone about what happened. And obviously, by the time we started making the film, the Me Too movement had broken, and suddenly women were being believed, the tides had shifted to a certain extent. But it was still very difficult for many of these women, some wouldn't speak to us at all which is completely fair enough and others did but they were still afraid of the kind of character assassination that was going on or the people saying some people who still say you know it was consensual or they did it for their career or they knew that they'd have to sort of face those battles again and again by choosing to take part so yeah, I mean, we we had long conversations about what we wanted to do with the film, how Ursula wanted to approach it, that, you know, we wanted to give them a voice, and also that we really wanted to understand the kind of culture and the power dynamic that had enabled this to happen to them. It was important also that we explained to them that the story would also be kind of a character study of Harvey, that we wanted to set the scene for how these crimes were perpetrated for so long and in order to do that you kind of have to tell the story of Harvey's life and so we we, you know we also told the women that that was going to be part of the film and that might be hard for them to see but it it was better that they knew that up front than sort of
1: be surprised you know down the line when watching it. I mean it's it's such a powerful and humbling thing to witness even as just as an audience member people peeling back the layers and exposing themselves so I wanted to ask one final question and bring it back to the thin blue line which has such an extraordinary legacy do you have a hope for your own films and what you hope to leave behind in any way I mean I think the thin blue line had a
2: legacy both for the impact on the case but also for its kind of innovative bold storytelling um, and I, you know that would be a nice legacy to have you know both being remembered for you know really strong creative storytelling, but also stories
1: that made people sit up and think and and see the world in a slightly different way. Poppy, thank you so much for your thoughtful answers today and for joining us on the Doc Exchange. It's really been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for having me. I've really enjoyed it. That's all for this week's show. The Doc Exchange, a Real Stories podcast, is a Little Dot Studios production in partnership with the Grierson Trust. I'm your host, June Jennings. The Doc Exchange is produced by Nicole Davis and Annie Hughes. Our executive producer is Paul Wolf. Our music is by Dusty Dex and sourced through Epidemic Sound. We're edited by Content is Queen. And our artwork is by Nash Kasich. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you want to watch even more great documentaries, join us at Real Stories on YouTube, Amazon, Facebook, and other platforms. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week.